1: ask those who are able to please stand for our first lesson. It's from the book of Lamentations, picking up in verse 19. And listen now to the word of God. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in Him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
0: You stand for our second reading. This one from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. Listen now to the word of God. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And Thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Human beings, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would lie, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, some of your versions might say. Behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Of course, it's a real uh, privilege for me to be here with you all this morning. This is uh, a special place for me. Some of you were here when I was ordained here in this sanctuary, and, uh, but especially for me because the pastoral staff here has been so encouraging and kind and loving towards me over the last several years. Jones, in particular, has invested a lot uh, in me. He was the chair of the committee that saw me through my whole ordination process. Even up to this past week, Jones still calls me pledge, uh, which is either a term of endearment or a symptom of an inferiority complex. Um, but I am thankful for him and for his friendship. It is quite sincere and very important to me. And I'm thankful for so many of you who I call friends. I've been greeted so warmly this morning in the early service and uh, even outside the hallway uh, before coming in here this morning. So thank you for that. Uh, It does mean more to me than than you know. On top of that, this morning with you all caps off uh, a wonderful week. It's an exclamation point. For me, uh, Jessica and I had the opportunity to spend several days in Birmingham. And during our time there, Jessica presented her master's thesis in biostatistics at UAB. That was a big day. We had a surprise party for her the following day. I then presided at a wedding for some old friends on a Thursday afternoon at Second Presbyterian. On Thursday, I got to watch my beloved Barons play at Regent's Field. And most importantly, we had the opportunity to introduce our eight-and-a-half-month-old daughter to dozens of friends of ours who had not had the chance to meet her because we had moved to Atlanta right after she was born. In fact, Maggie was born on October 25th of last year, and before Halloween, we had already moved her to Atlanta. And one of my favorite gifts we received is a sign that hangs in her room It says, I wasn't born in Georgia, but I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> I love that. Some of you know that it took almost five years of fertility drugs, waiting on adoption lists, weekly visits to the doctor, countless medical procedures, and endless frustration before we took a positive pregnancy test and began to anticipate our daughter. And let me tell you, infertility feels hopeless because it is the first time in my life where I felt totally out of control. And that's what hopelessness feels like. And during those years of waiting for Maggie, we got to the point where we dreaded going to church because all the young couples in our small congregation started to have children of their own, and these were our dear friends, and we wanted to be happy for them, and we were happy for them. We wanted to celebrate them, except in the midst of that wanting to celebrate, we're also reminded of something that we lacked, that we so deeply wanted, so deeply desired. Jessica, who sang in the choir, could hardly hardly bear to sit in the choir loft and look out at young mothers with their newborns. It's a very difficult time for us, a hopeless time. And I'll never forget the Tuesday morning back in February of 2014, the day that we were to learn the results of our first IVF procedure, and I was a wreck even more so than I would have expected. That day, and even to this day, the image of Hannah and First Samuel comes to mind. As it says there, I was distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and I did. I'd never wept out of stress before, out of anguish, but I did. The moment was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I was exhausted, hopeless. Later that afternoon, we learned that we were pregnant, and I could hardly muster a response. I think that was a symptom of the exhaustion, and I stood in silence and shock. But now as I think back about that, I realize that it was a crash course in hope and in hopelessness. God was teaching me the difference between my idealized expectations for my family, for my future, for my wife and children, and what that would look like. God was teaching me the difference between that and the certainty of hope that we have in Christ. I realized then that those circumstances were not about hope in Christ, that hope is something a little bit more sure and certain. Can you remember a time when you endured a period of hopelessness, of feeling out of control, of being in despair? Some of you are experiencing that despair, that hopelessness, even now. Perhaps you are hopeless about a friendship, a relationship. Perhaps you're hopeless about your family, your marriage, the struggles of a friend or a sibling who you just don't know how to fix. Maybe you're hopeless about a troubling medical diagnosis or the unexpected, tragic loss of a loved one. Some of you are hopeless about enduring a very difficult season in the life of your church. But even beyond that, what about the hopelessness being endured by our brothers and sisters in Christ across the nation and around the world? How are we who endure our own seasons of hopelessness and who on this side of heaven always have that tinge of hopelessness in our lives, how are we to proclaim a hope to a world that endures such deep despair? What sort of hope are we able to offer brothers and sisters at Mother Emanuel in Charleston? What sort of hope are we able to offer to the families of murdered service members in Chattanooga? We say we offer the hope of Christ hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, and we should. But what do we mean by that? What is hope? Consider now the words of Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6, the author is addressing, this is the context of Hebrews 6, the author is addressing the mystery of apostasy, the mystery of people leaving the faith. And we ought not to think that the circumstances here for the audience are unlike our own. We live in an era full of apostasy. We don't often call it that, but we do. We live in an era full of people leaving the faith. Sociologists refer to the generation my age as full of people who are nuns and duns with respect to their religious participation. And the catalyst for much, much of this is the way the church has continued to offer little more than therapy, wishful thinking, moral platitudes, Fortune cookie faith. A distant God who mostly wants us to be happy. This is a faith that fails to offer a certain hope, except perhaps in anything but ourselves. And so we heed the words earlier from chapter 5, where it says, quote, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. One of the basic principles to be taught if my reading of Hebrews is correct, is hope in Christ. The certainty of God's promises. And one of the reasons we can say this is because God's desire, indicated earlier in chapter 6, is for us to, quote, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of faith until the end. The full assurance of hope until the end. The exemplar of this hope is Abraham. And if you pause for a moment, you realize that Abraham is always the exemplar from hope. In Romans 4, in Hebrews 11, in Acts 7, in Galatians 3, Abraham is always this example of faith and of hope. Abraham, who throughout the narrative of Genesis trusts God and waits patiently for for the fulfillment of God's promises. This is our example of putting hope in God. Romans 4 puts it this way. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. That's described again for us here in Hebrews 6. So Abraham is the model for hope because Abraham trusted in the certainty of God's promise even though he doesn't know the details of what the promise will look like. He doesn't really know for sure what immediate good, if any, will come from this promise. He does not know for sure that his circumstances tomorrow will be any more improved than they are in that moment. He picks up, leaves his homeland because God tells him to. Now, this makes it seem as if faith and hope are synonymous, and I think they're very closely related, but there's a subtle yet important difference that I think will be helpful to us. Faith is about trust. Hope is about expectation and anticipation. We live by faith, but we expect by hope. Faith believes God to be truthful. Hope expects God to demonstrate his truthfulness at the right time. Faith believes that eternal life has been given to us, and hope expects that eternal life will be revealed to us at the right time. Like the disciples who immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus, Abraham's hope strikes us as reckless. It is a blind hope. And I wonder if you were Abraham's friend, what would you have told him? Abraham comes to you and says, listen, God told me to pack up everything, take my family and go somewhere that I've never been before. Not exactly sure what this is going to look like. What do you think? As someone suffering from what I call eldest sibling syndrome, I would have told him, don't be so risky. Plan it out. Think long term. You need a strategy here. Do you have a retirement plan? But for Abraham, this is not about envisioning. This is not about planning. This is not about idealizing circumstances for the future. But about putting hope in God for the future. This type of God-formed, God-wrought, God-shaped hope is beautifully described for us in Romans 8. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So hope in God comes not with a guarantee of what the future holds, but with the guarantee that God holds the future. As we read in verse 18, our hope in God is guaranteed by an oath that God makes with himself. I love the children's sermon this morning. I think we could have just let that stand and I could have not preached and it would have been sufficient. Talking this idea about This idea of God making an oath with himself about God being faithful and steadfast in his promises. But God makes a double bonded oath based on his word, based on his promise. He covenants with himself to keep his promises to his people, to Abraham and to us. Thus, Abraham's hope is not really ultimately his own. His hope belongs to, resides in, and proceeds from the life of the triune God. It is not a hope conjured up By Abraham's positive attitude. Like Abraham, we're not to imagine, envision, or assume we know what God has in store. Rather, we rest in the certain hope that God will fulfill his promises in a way that will surpass and exceed our short-sighted expectations. This brings us to what I would call our big idea for this morning. So if you've been checked out for the last eight minutes or so, this would be a good point to wake up and pay attention for about 10 seconds. If we leave here with nothing else today, let's leave with this. Hope is not optimism that God will improve circumstances. Hope is the certainty that God is with us and will have the final word in every circumstance. Hope is not optimism that God will improve circumstances, but it is the certainty that God is with us and will have the final word in every circumstance. This distinction between optimism and hope is crucial. Neuroscientists have taught us a great deal about something called optimism bias. Our brains, by their nature, tend to imagine and project futures for ourselves that are unrealistically positive and bright and fulfilling. Rationally, we know that terrible things can and do often happen. Illness, divorce, death, unemployment, infertility. And we know that there's a reasonable chance that one or more of these things could one day happen to us. And yet studies show that the vast majority of people envision the future as if they are the exception to all of these circumstances. As if these bad things could not happen to us. In general, this is a good thing for society because people with positive outlooks are more motivated to live long and productive lives. But in terms of hope, this can be devastating to have these expectations of what you believe God will do for you and then for it to fall so terribly short. Optimism bias will not suffice when it becomes when it comes to proclaiming hope in the midst of hopelessness and despair because a positive attitude will not be a cure-all. A positive attitude is not enough for families in Charleston and in Chattanooga. As Christians, we cannot allow our hope in Christ to be reduced to a fleeting optimism, an irrational sort of well-wishing, a set of proof texts to offer a nice moral platitude. And this needs to be said because there is so much false teaching and false preaching on this point that leaves us in despair. Hope is so often treated as a mechanism for guaranteeing improved circumstances, a particular blessing from God. If you just have enough faith, enough hope, then God will surely do this, and it leaves people in despair. Rather, hope has to be a matter of certainty. Certainty that God will act when God sees fit to act for our good. Benjamin Franklin famously said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes, but for the follower of Jesus, hope in Christ is in fact certain, and indeed much more so. Hope in the triune God is certain because it is a hope that proceeds not from us, not from our optimism, but from God himself, who covenants with himself. Hope in God is hope from God, and that is why it is certain. The optimist speaks about good things that could happen tomorrow. The hopeful follower of Jesus lives every moment with the certainty that all of life is held in his hands. But the truth is, is that hope doesn't always seem certain for us. Like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, we live life in a mirror dimly. Things are not always clear. Life is very gray for us at times. We experience moments in which the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, We identify with the man in the Gospels who comes to Jesus, asking Jesus to heal his mute son, and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is what we experience. So sometimes hope is hard to come by, difficult to sustain, because certainty about God's promises can seem very abstract to us. It's a nice... Theological proposition, but may not feel very real to us to be that certain. And so, in our last few moments this morning, I want to suggest three concrete images that can help us to sustain this vision of hope. The three images are the anchor, the cross, and open hands. First, the anchor of verse 19. The image of the anchor can help us not only because anchors hold us firmly in place, but because of the context in which anchors typically serve their purpose. And here I am going to read from our brother, John Calvin, who has a wonderful commentary on this word. I cannot put it any better myself. Please listen to this. Doubtless, as long as we sojourn in this world, we stand not on firm ground, but are tossed here and there as in the midst of the sea. And it is very turbulent. For Satan is incessantly stirring up innumerable storms, which would immediately upset and sink our vessel. Were we not cast our anchor fast in the deep? For nowhere a haven appears to our eyes, but everywhere we look is water. Waves arise and threaten us. But as the anchor is cast through the waters into a dark and unseen Place And while it lies hid there, it keeps the vessel beaten by the waves from being overwhelmed. So must our hope be fixed on the invisible God. No distance of place, no darkness of the deep can prevent us from cleaving to him. Thus, when united to God, though we must struggle with continual storms, we are yet already beyond the peril of the shipwreck. Our second image is the cross. The word cross is not explicitly mentioned here in Hebrews 6, but it is clearly implied in verses 19 and 20 by the image of Jesus entering into the holy holies, the inner place behind the curtain. Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us that Christ has entered into, not a copy of the temple, but into the true temple, the true holy of holies in order to offer himself once and for all as a sacrifice for sin. This is the cross. On the cross, Jesus offered himself both as the high priest and the sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. Jesus in the holy of holies, Jesus behind the veil, Jesus offering himself as an atonement for sin is Jesus on the cross. That's the image of Hebrews 9 and 10 especially. It's astounding to me what Hebrews 6.19 says because it says that hope itself enters into the holy of holies. In other words, our hope is literally at the cross with Jesus. Our hope is literally in that time and space where Jesus atones for the sins of the world. In the midst of hopelessness, God calls us, calls you, calls me, to the cross where God suffers with us in our hopelessness, where all of our human experience is subsumed and takes place within the selflessness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. At the cross, we are reminded not only that God intimately knows our hopelessness, but actually that it is precisely in our hopelessness that God most powerfully and profoundly reveals himself. We are often inundated with versions of hope that have no cross, Fleeting optimism and wishful thinking have little room for the cross. But we serve a God crucified. Some of you have perhaps heard the story of Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann is uh, one of my favorite theologians and churchmen, still alive to this day. Moltmann was drafted in the German Army during World War II as an Air Force Auxiliary. He was sent to the Reichswald, a German forest at the front lines. And there, in 1945, in the dark, he surrendered to the first British soldier he encountered. For the next few years, until 1948, he was confined as a prisoner of war and moved from camp to camp. He was first confined in Belgium. And this is where he and his fellow prisoners of war were confronted with the pictures of concentration and extermination camps at Belzen and Auschwitz. The initial disbelief among the German soldiers soon gave way to a grave realization that they had indirectly participated in these horrors. Moltmann claimed to have lost all hope. His remorse was so great, he often felt he would have rather died along with so many of his comrades than to live face to face with the reality of what his beloved nation had done. As Moltmann recounts in his book entitled The Source of Life, quote, the depression over wartime destruction and a captivity without any apparent end was exacerbated by a feeling of profound shame at having to share in this disgrace. At that point, many of the prisoners gave in to despair and lost any desire to look to the future. Yet, Jürgen was confronted by an unexpected source of hope when a chaplain gave him a Bible. He later claimed, I didn't find Christ, Christ found me. This encounter with Christ took place through his reading of the Psalms of Lament and the narrative of Jesus' crucifixion, by which he says he was transformed by the hope of the cross. As he read about the suffering of Jesus on the cross, he Uh, He writes that he encountered a God who could identify fully with his suffering, his shame, his hopelessness. He writes, I began to understand the assailed Christ because I felt that he understood me. This was the divine brother in distress who takes the prisoners with him on his way from the cross to resurrection. I then began to summon summon up the courage to live again, seized by a great hope. I love that line. Seized. By a great hope. Jürgen Moltmann went on to become one of the most influential, prolific theologians of the 20th century, perhaps most well-known for his books, The Theology of Hope and The Crucified God. So to be a people of hope and a community of hope that can proclaim hope into the midst of despair, into hopelessness. We must be willing to face the despair of our fellow human beings, whether we understand their despair or not. We cannot bypass the the deep and dark reality of despair. We cannot bypass that on our way to hope. Rather, we pass through the cross so that we're able to come face to face with despair, with the certainty that God is with us. And again, that God will have the final word. Jesus frequently reminds his disciples that following him means following him through difficulty, persecution, dark times. It means taking up a cross. So this following of Jesus, according to the Gospels, is not particularly something that breeds optimism. But it is an act full of hope. Because following Jesus, even to the cross, means knowing with certainty, even in death, we will find our way to true freedom, true hope. This brings us very briefly to our final image, open hands. One of the more simple but meaningful practices I've had the, or that I've learned from my colleagues at Macedonian Ministry in Atlanta is to approach situations with open hands, quite literally, to approach situations with open hands. With open hands, we... Freely receive whatever God provides and freely relinquish whatever God takes away. Our open hands means not holding on to any desires, wishes, ideals, strategies, plans too tightly. Rather, it means loosening our grip on our own lives and trusting God with our future, no matter how daunting that might seem to us. Open hands is a posture of trust, of walking into each day with the freedom that a certain hope in God can sustain. Walking into each day with open hands is to enact our statement of earlier, that hope is not optimism that God will improve circumstances, but the certainty that God is with us and will have the final word in every circumstance. The only way for me to live this out is to approach every day with open hands. In fact, when you leave the building today, I invite you... Just for a moment, to open your hands, palms up, and for that moment, rest in the certainty that God is with you and has the final word. Now, I understand as Presbyterians, if you don't want anybody else to see you do this, but as you walk out today, consider doing that for just a moment. Walk into the future with hope in God, anchored by the gospel and comforted by the cross, And when you proclaim hope into the midst of hopelessness and despair, proclaim boldly and clearly the certainty of God's presence, promise, and power that God will never leave nor forsake us, and that He is most certainly making all things new. Our hope is in God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.